or the one right after that would be the 16th. So I'm going to probably push it to the following week because we have five Thursdays, I think. Or do you want me to do the volleyball game? Either way. Well, yeah. But I just want to throw it out there that I might have to, I might push it out. Yeah. But anyways, September 1st, we're on. Okay. <laughs> and then the men's study is this Friday. So that's this Thursday, September 1st. This upcoming Thursday. Yes. Then the men's Friday is this. The men's study is this Friday, 6.30 at the house, and or we're also doing it on Saturday mornings. Some of the guys can make it Saturdays, um, and some can't, so we added the Friday night, so that way everybody has a chance to make it. Um, the yeah. next youth night is September 9th here at the house. It's a Friday night. Friday nights work best for me, in case I'm traveling. Uh, and then there's the 5k run that is going to be October 22nd in Elizabeth at 9 a.m. Um, it starts at the Harvest Bible Church and the, the run walk it's a run walk it's not really a race um, is going to be down the new trail in Elizabeth so yeah me and you can race <laughs> but the, this benefits the Alternatives Pregnancy Center um, is the Kind of the purpose for this race it's just a fundraiser to support them so put this on your calendar if you don't want to run or walk it you could um, volunteer to help they need lots of volunteers um, but it'd just be a good thing in the community so yeah and then we have see you at the poll on september 28th so for those of you who want it's student-led but I would be glad to help you set it up. I have some flyers that you could set up at your school. Yeah, I don't know. So I'm just letting you know, it's student-led. But like for the Fritzes, I'll talk to Joey. And if his kids want to do the same thing, we'll help them and get it set up if that's what they'd like. So it's for all kids, all kids. who need help cool. getting it yeah, set up. It's pretty, it's pretty moving to see all these kids. <laughs> so is that every at their school. Yeah. 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 So it's yeah. yeah. Okay. Around that place. So it's yeah. Okay. Around the pole. Yep. So you, you, you meet at the pole. I'll see you at the pole. Yeah. I'll see you at the pole. It's September 28th. <laughs> and it's just a student-led prayer. It started in the 90s in Texas with a group of students um, and it's just spread from there. So. Yeah. So there, so there, there is a. <laughs> yeah. It's September twenty eighth. It's a Wednesday, so it's the fourth. It, it happens every year, and it's the fourth Wednesday of September. Every year. Is it just the one day? Yeah, just the one day. Um, I think it's also considered National Student Prayer Week. Um, but but yes, Wednesday is the day that they meet at the poll. The fourth Wednesday of September, huh? It's just one day a year? One day a year. You can do it anytime you want. Yeah. What time? Uh, 7.30. Okay. So, yeah. So that's a, a miss. Just because it gets, like, in our park, it gets busy. You'll see, all, you'll see people pulling up and, and then running carpool and all that. So, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's pretty cool. But that is a misconception that you can't pray to schools. Not sure. And unfortunately, the people you hear that from the most is pastors at the pulpit. And I pray for them. I, I do pray that God would rebuke them. 
and, and show them that what they're teaching is not true. Because you hear that a lot of times. Well, you can't pray. You absolutely can pray at schools. The only thing that you can't do is a school official, while acting in their official capacity, can't lead a prayer or can't lead a religious group. But you can absolutely participate in it. This is before school, so um, school staff can participate in it. It's outside of school activity hours. So you absolutely can. You can Notre Dame coach just got a big lawsuit settlement against his college for firing for praying on the field with his team. Yeah. And he won. Yep. So, and they, they, yeah, God yeah. Yeah. So it's you absolutely can pray in schools. So you can come to school board meetings, you can pray. People get to two, three minutes to say whatever they want. You can use that time to pray. I don't think there's very many school boards that would reject that. So so people can pray in schools, it's just a, a misconception that you can't and unfortunately it's a misconception that's spread by by the church. <laughs> so um and then email updates. If we just send out an email, try and send it out once a week so you kinda know what's going on. Um if you're not signed up for that, sign up for that, and you'll be in the know. You'll be in the loop. So but that's kind of the announcements. The other thing that I didn't put a thing up for is we're still praying um, for uh, bringing a bus, a stork bus, into Elbert County or into Elizabeth. Um, but it does seem like the pastors on Friday mornings, they get together ever since this came up. It's just been like one spiritual attack on somebody's family after another. So we really haven't got very far on it because we have not all been together again since we brought this up three weeks ago. So we'll continue to pray for that. Um, just that you could bring that, we could bring that bus to Albert County or to Elizabeth and, <coughs> and, and just love on people. So with that, um, let's get started and we'll pray. Dear Father, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your love, for your mercy, your grace. I'm thankful for the ways that you guide and provide for each one of us. I just ask that you would watch over families, that you would watch over marriages, that you would strengthen marriages, you would draw each one of us closer to you, bring us close to our spouses, that you would strengthen family bonds, that you would draw each person closer to you and draw them to get closer together as a family. And the enemy wants to come against families and come against um, marriages and, and just come against your people. And attack in any way that they can. And I just ask that you would strengthen us, encourage us, um, and just speak to our hearts today. Let your words be spoken here. Um, meet us right where, we're, right where we're at. You know what we're going through. You know our struggles. You know our desires. I just ask that you would meet us right here, right now, and speak to us. And guide us through the study of your word. Strengthen our faith in you. Encourage us. Draw us closer to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, we are in Romans chapter 8, and we will actually finish up chapter 8 today, which is pretty exciting. But we have a lot to cover, um, so we only have a few verses left in chapter 8, but as usual, we'll be in quite a few places in the Bible. So, because I do believe that God's whole word, from Genesis to Revelation, is, is what we're to live our lives on, not just any one part. And we'll get to see that again today. We've seen that many other times in, in other studies. Um, that one verse could be taken out of context, but when we look at it as a whole, where else does God talk about this in his word? He makes it very clear. And so I'm very excited just to go over that today, to what we're about to see. But here we're going to start in Romans chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 31. So we'll be in Romans 
but we'll be bouncing back and forth between some other verses. All the verses will be on the screen. For the most part, we'll be in the New Living Translation, but there's a couple times where we'll jump over to the, the New King James Version or the New American Standard, um, and it's just mostly for to get down into the details of the words. Sometimes um, the New Living Translation doesn't get that detailed, um, so I want to make sure that we're being correct in that. So here in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? So God sacrificed his dearly loved son for us, us sinners. Um, and such wonderful things as these. Last time we went over, um, you know, kind of Romans eight twenty eight, you know, that, that God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we kind of went through those, those words, you know, what does it mean to be chosen or predestined? Um, and that that was chosen or predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That spoke of being sanctified. That before God created the earth, he knew man would sin, but he already had a plan. His plan was to send his son before he ever created the earth. And we looked at that. And that part of that would that we'd go through this process when we received Jesus, that we'd be set apart like him, more like him each and every day. And that um, he predetermined that. He predetermined we'd be conformed to the image of his son. Um, so he's talking about such wonderful things as these. you know, And we've learned that, that the Holy Spirit is... is praying for us and, and groans that can't even be expressed in words and that God knows all the hearts and knows the heart of the spirit and knows the, our hearts um, and that we have all these things that are working for us and that's what Paul's talking about here with all these things that God has set up for us who could ever be against us and the answer to that is is the enemy is against us but they won't prevail remember a few weeks ago we talked through this that the sin was defeated on the cross sin and death were defeated on the cross no longer um, viable, no longer um, has any power over us. The enemy was defeated on the cross and our sins were taken out on the cross. It can't be hold up, held over us again. When we ask for forgiveness, he removes it from our record. So, But I want to take a look at, at 1 John 4.9. Um, you don't have to go there. It'll be up on the screen and we're going to bounce for a couple other verses um, just to, to further emphasize what Paul's saying here. So 1 John 4, 9 and 10. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So God shows us here what sacrificial love is, that that his son was, came as a sacrifice. We've been over this many times, but love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. And that's what God's saying here. This agape love, this self-sacrificing love, the perfect example of that is God sacrificing his own son for our sins. Now, God chose us. He chose to love us, not because we deserve it, but because he chose to love us. He made that choice. Love is a choice. Um, over and over again, I, I just don't think we can say that enough. The world wants to tell us over and over and over again and lie to us that love is a feeling. You know, you should feel this way. You should, you have the right to be happy. 
you should feel happy, do what makes you happy, all these other things that they lie to us constantly about, and that's not what God says. God says love is a choice. You know, so when you hear people that look to, to separate from their spouse, look to get divorced, and they say, well, we fell out of love. No, no, no. You chose to stop loving one another. That's what happened. Or you chose to stop loving your spouse. It's a choice, no matter what um, the world says to us. So, And I love that, that God takes away our sins. There's that, that last sentence. To take away our sins, to remove them from our record. He never holds it over us again. We may have trouble forgiving ourselves, but God doesn't have trouble forgiving us, and he never brings it up. It's never that he gets mad, oh, but remember all this you did? No, he never brings it up, and we've been over that. We've seen that where in the New Testament we read about these, these people of the Bible, and it reads that they're faithful, that they're um, righteous. And then we go back to read the Old Testament, well, it doesn't seem faithful and righteous, the things they did. Well, God did what he said he did, would. Um, they asked for forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross. Those sins were taken out on the cross. And now when he recounts them in the New Testament after Jesus, he recounts the good that they did, not the bad. He doesn't hold it over our heads. Um, we're going to jump to John 15, starting in verse 12, and take a look at this also. So this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So this is the definition of agape love. He's laying down his life for his friends. And then we're his friends when we, we do what he commands. God is love. We're told the commands are love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. We're told to love God, love our neighbor, love ourselves. When we do that, Jesus said that that sums up all the laws. Um, those are the, the, the two commands that he really gives us. And when we follow that, the word is friends. But that's not easy. How do you do that? Well, you have to lay down your life. Jesus sacrificed his life for us, and I can't ever repay that. But I can lay down my life to serve him. And, and serving him is many different capacities. We're the body of Christ. We each have a different role. Um, and we're going to look at that today. We're going to get into that where some group of people say, well, I don't like my job. I should have this job over here. God, you got it wrong. And, and we're going to look at, at why that, that isn't the, the case. That God has called us each to a different role, and we should be content to the role he's called us to. And we should serve him faithfully in the role that he's called us to. Um, you hear the... the the term a living sacrifice. We're called to be a living sacrifice. Okay, God, I want to be used by you. But then when things get tough, well, not really. I want to crawl off that altar. And that's not what God is, is looking for here. He's looking for us to lay down our life for him, to serve him, to love him, to make that choice. So we'll go back to Romans 8.33 and continue on here. So Romans 8.33 who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? And here we go to the, the New King James, and, and I want to, mostly because I want to look at this word elect, um, Sometimes this is a stumbling block for some people too. Um, 
this word elect is, is what we were looking at before, same word as chosen, um, or further up in, in Romans eight twenty nine, predestined. We just saw that a few verses ago last week, predestined. Um, and what were we predestined for? He says we we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And there's the other word that we went over last week was called. And what did he call us to? Well, it says that in 828, he called us for a purpose, for his purpose. So he's got a job for us. It's our choice to, to follow him, to, to do what he's asked us to do or not. But that's what it is. He's chosen us to be like his son. He's chosen us to be set apart, to go through the sanctification process. And he's called us for a purpose. He has a plan and a purpose for each one of our lives. And that plan and purpose is different from our neighbor. And it's oftentimes that we want to compare ourselves. Well, I don't like this job that I have. I want their job. I should be doing that. I'm better at that. Um, so, and that's not where God has, has called us to. He's called us to be set apart. Set apart from sin. Set apart for his purpose. For God's purpose. Um, and who has the power to condemn here? Well, Paul answers his own question. And it's Jesus. And that's the other reason we're in the New King James for this, this verse. You know, so verse 34, who is he who condemns? The only one that can condemn, that, that can, can judge, that ultimate judgment is Jesus. And it's at the great white throne judgment that he does this. Um, and he judges who has received him and who has rejected him. Um, and for those that have received him, he intercedes for us. You know, so he's at God's right hand pleading for us, praying for us, interceding for us. And who better to have as your, as your intercessor or as your defense attorney than Jesus himself? And that's what he's doing. So it's like the Holy Spirit is, is praying for us. Jesus is interceding for us. If God is for you, who can be against you? And with all this that God is doing for us, he's given us every opportunity to be successful in him, to walk with him, to sin less. Not be sinless, not be perfect, but sin less every day to grow. And we should be able to look at our lives. My life now compared to five years ago, am I walking closer with God? Do I have less sin in my life than I did? Am I more patient? Am I more kind? Am I more loving? Do I have more of the fruits of the Spirit? So, um, and the answer should be yes. And that's a, a self-examination we should do. And if we don't have that, we should be praying, pleading to God, God, help me. Draw me closer to you. Make me more like your son. I want less of me and more of you. Continuing on here in Romans 8.35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? So Christ's love was to lay down his life for us. Is there anything that can separate us from that? When we accept Jesus' love, we accept his sacrifice. We're told that we're saved. We have eternal life with him. Can anything separate us from that love? And the answer is no. No, nothing can separate us from that love. Jesus laid down his life. Once we've received him, he comes into our life. And at no point can he walk, does he just leave us? Does he abandon us? No, he doesn't. That's what Paul's saying here. This, this idea of once you're saved, you're, you're saved. There is no, I think I'm saved, I'm a good person, no, when you're saved, you've asked him into your life and, and you, you've repented from your sins. You once lived this way and now you're living the opposite. You're walking with him. You are saved. And the Bible makes that very clear. And we're to take 
hope in that, but not a worldly hope of a, uh, a wish, but a hope, a godly hope, a hope of a guarantee that this will happen so that we will be eternally um, destined to live with him. So I do want to look, since we are here, look at these trials though, you know, does this mean that God doesn't love me any longer when I have hard times or going through troubles? Or um, I think that there's two reasons that we go through troubles. I'm not going to look at both of those. Um, the first one is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. So 1 John 5, 18. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God, because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. So when we go through hard times, when we go through trials, um, one of the first things that we should do is ask, ask God, God, is there sin in my life? Is there undealt some sin that I have not dealt with in my life? Is that what's brought this on? And that's one of the first things we should ask. And not that God, we've been over this, he wipes our slate clean. There's consequences for sin, but there's not this lingering, you've done this and this and continual punishment. We, have a, we serve a very loving God, a forgiving God. Um, but there are sins in our lives. When we received him, we received him as sinful people. We didn't get all cleaned up at once, right? It's a process of sanctification. So, so we... When we go through troubled times, one of the first things we should do is just ask, God, is there sin in my life that I need to deal with? Um, and, and that may be true, but that may not be true. There's another reason that we go through, through trials and, and tough times in our lives. And for that, we're going to go to James chapter 1 and look at what the, the other reason is. So James chapter 1, starting here in verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So that's a big statement. You'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Um, and when you have troubles, it grows your endurance. Um, so what happens is troubles, trial times, grow me closer to God. Like it or not, when things are kind of going smoothly, um, I'm still in prayer, but my prayers aren't as earnest, aren't as urgent, aren't as frequent, um, aren't as, as deeply heartfelt as when I'm in a, a time of trouble or crisis in my life. Then I press into God more and more. God, please help me. Please, you know, help me through this bring clarity to this, you know. So in the times of troubles, I'm pressing more into God. It's just how it is. And I think that's the way it is for most of us. 
that when we're going through troubled times, that's when we press into God the most. Not that we don't um, acknowledge Him, spend time with Him in prayer, um, in His Word when we're not, but it seems like we do it even more so and even more fervently when we are going through these troubled times. Um, and the endurance, relating it to endurance. So when I think of endurance, I like to run and, and I can measure my endurance and how far can I run without stopping? Is it two miles? Is it 10 miles? Is it 15 miles? You know, um, and is it 50 miles? There's people that run these ultra marathons, 50 miles. And, you know, how long can you go without stopping? And, and the longer you can, the longer your endurance. And so the way I relate this to, to trials and testing is, is what is my endurance with God? How long am I walking with him? How long am I focused on him? And these trials grow that time. They keep me focused on him more and more at longer periods of time. Um, and, it, and it says when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So what is that full endurance? It's that full endurance of, of being walking with God, being in fellowship with him, being in communication with him, having his life, um, having my life sacrificed to him at all times. And, and this side of eternity, that doesn't happen. But this is the process of sanctification. He's setting us further and further apart from sin and setting us apart for his purpose. And it's, a, it's something that takes, takes a life to, to do. So all through our life, we'll have troubles and trials. But it's the chance to grow our endurance, to grow our faith in him, to grow our trust in him. So two reasons we go through these trials. One is there could be undealt with sin in our lives. But the other is it's a chance for us to grow. Grow our faith. Grow our trust. Grow closer to God. So since we're here, I did want to touch on that. But going back to Romans um, verse, verse eight, or, uh, chapter 8, verse 36. And this is where... You're thinking, oh, we only got a few verses left, and, and we're pretty far along, but this is where we're going to take a, a fairly lengthy detour, because I want to look at this um, in detail, this verse 36. So verse 36, Paul just got done talking about, you know, what can separate us from Christ's love. What happens when we go through trials? Does that mean that God doesn't love us anymore because we're having this trouble in our life? Um, and then he brings in this verse 36, as the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. So verse 36, just at face value, if you just read it here, it seems kind of hopeless. Oh, we're being slaughtered like sheep every day for your sake, God. Like, almost like you don't care about us, right? It's kind of how it comes across. And that's not what Paul's intention is here. And that's not what God's intention is. And we'll go through that. It's going to take us a minute to, to explain this. But this is kind of like the reason that God teaches in parables. We went through that. For those who press into to the parable, press into the story, He gives you greater understanding. Not because you're after knowledge, but because you want to know this God that you serve more. And this is one of those times. I think God gives you greater understanding when you press more into this. And, and it's going to take us a minute to get through it. But this is what I love about the Bible. You get to, when we look at it, Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible, he gives us a much deeper understanding. So, and I, when we're through, I think you'll be able to, to come to the same conclusion I do, is that he's not giving us this sense of hopelessness. Like he's just 
led us out to be slaughtered, doesn't care about us. That's not his intent, and that's not what he's doing. So, this verse 36, as the scriptures say, we find that in Psalm 44, verse 22. But we're not going to go there yet. Um, We're actually going to go to Numbers chapter 16 first. Um, So, Psalm 44 is written by the sons of Korah. So then that, or the descendants of Korah. So then that brings up the question, well, who is Korah? And Korah is mentioned in Numbers chapter 16. And I thought about reading the whole chapter, because it is kind of a cool story, like the talkie donkey story. But we'll just, uh, we'll go through some, some of the highlights. So at this point in the Bible, um, the Israelites... Um, the, the nation of Israel was started with Abraham, um, and we get a few generations later, we get down to Joseph, and Joseph is sold, this is the Joseph of the coat of many colors, is sold into slavery by his brothers, they were so jealous of him, he ends up a, a slave in Egypt, um, but God has favor for him, everywhere he's at, in prison, he's um, um, always, God is working for his good. And, and he's given these places of, of authority and of honor. Um, and, and ultimately, he ends up being a, a very high-ranking official in the nation of Egypt. Here, this slave, and he's a slave, and, and God turns him into this high-ranking official. He's running the country of Egypt. Um, and his brothers come to him, and, and there's a, a chance to repent. And, and he saves the, the nation of Egypt through this famine. Um, Joseph does. And Joseph, God, brings Joseph's family into Egypt. And, and that's where Israel ends up. That's how they end up in Egypt. They didn't come there as slaves. They came there as, as a people that were helping this nation, um, helped them through a, a terrible time. And throughout the years, though, um, Egypt had forgotten about that. And now Egypt has enslaved the Israelites. And they've um, oppressed them and are, are really harsh with them um, and then God sends Moses to free the Israelites from the nation of Egypt, parts the Red Sea, and, and does all these things. And, and at this point in life, they're wandering through the wilderness. Um, we're headed for the promised land, but the, the people aren't faithful. They, they love God for a second, but they're quickly to turn back to their old ways. And, and they're longing, oh, look at the days of Egypt and, and the land of milk and flowing honey that we had back there. No, you were pressed and beaten and slaves you're remembering this wrong. But anyways, so at this point in, in the Bible, we're looking at Moses and Aaron, and, and they're leading the nation of Israel, and, and God has chosen them for that. And then we have this group of Levites that don't like their job. Well, we should have your job, Moses. Who made you ruler over us? You know. And so these three men kind of come against them, and they're led by this man, Korah. And they rise up some other leaders in the community, another 250 leaders to come with them. So they all come against Moses and they're saying, well, we should be leaders, not you, Moses. You know, who appointed you king over us? And well, God did. So they're not really coming against Moses. They think they are. They're really coming against God himself. So Moses says, okay, we'll show up tomorrow morning and we'll see who's with God and who's not. And and we'll let God decide this matter. Um, And... And so the next morning, God says, all right, Moses, step out of the way. I'm going to wipe this whole people group out. I'm done with them. And Moses and Aaron are pleading, no, 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 don't wipe them out. You know, just, just the sin of this one man. And it wasn't really one man. It was all these leaders that sinned. Um, but God says, okay, 
I won't wipe them out, but you tell everyone to get away from their, their tents, you know, and, and so we'll pick it up here in number 16, verse 28. So Moses warned them all to get away from their tents. And then here in verse 28, and Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things that I have done for you. For I have not done them on my own. If these men die a natural death, or if nothing unusual happens, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord does something entirely new, and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them and all their belongings, and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have shown contempt for the Lord. He had hardly finished speaking. He had hardly finished speaking the words when the ground suddenly split open beneath them. The earth opened up its mouth, swallowed the men and all their households and their followers who were standing there with them and everything they owned. So they went down alive into the grave along with their belongings. The earth closed over them and they all vanished from among the people of Israel. So (laughs) Moses says, well, if they just die a natural death, then God's not with me. But if God does something new, like opens up the ground and swallows them alive whole, then you'll know that these men are in contempt, that they've come against God, they've sinned against God, um, and that I have been chosen to lead this nation. He no more than gets done saying it, and God opens up the earth and swallows them all. <laughs> I mean, pretty crazy, right? So, no. But that's not the... That's not the, the point of why we're here. The point of why we're here is to learn this man, Korah. And this man, Korah, is the one that led kind of this, this group of people. Um, but the other place that we read about Korah is just a few chapters down the road in Numbers chapter 26. And this is kind of, this is definitely a sidebar from where we're at. But I, I just think it's, it's important and it's, it's just so cool how God's word, how he has set this up. So we read about Korah in his life, um, that he lived this rebellious life, right? And he rebelled against God. He, he thought he was coming against Moses, but really he's coming against God himself. Um, never a good idea to come against God. So here in Numbers chapter 26, we get a little further insight into this. Um, we'll pick it up here in verse 9. So then Eliab was the father of Nimrul, Dathan, and Aram. This Dathan and Aram are the same community leaders who conspired with Korah against Moses and Aaron, rebelling against the Lord. But the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them with Korah, and fire devoured the 250, other fo- the 250 of their followers. This served as a warning to the entire nation of Israel. And this is why we're here. This is the important verse. However, the sons of Korah did not die that day. So we read here that these, these are the other two men that were with Korah. And if we would have read through all of Numbers chapter 16, they're called out there. And God makes it very clear. Um, the other thing that God makes clear is that, that their families died with them. Dathan and Abram's families. Their children, the little ones, all of them died with them. Which is interesting that he calls that out in number 16. We didn't read through that part, but, but you can read through it. It's an amazing story. But here we're told in, in chapter 26, however, the sons of Korah did not die that day, which I find very interesting. The, the other 
children and, and sons and, and daughters and families of these two men, these three men, the, the two of them, their families all perished that day, but the sons of Korah did not. Um, and I think what God is doing here is he's making it very clear that there is no such thing as this concept of generational curses. You've heard that, oh, there's this generational curse. Not true. Um, people get this from, from Exodus chapter 34. Um, and, it's, and we'll read through it here at Exodus 34. But we're going to read through it in the New King James because the wording is very, very important. People, I think, have taken this out of context. And then we're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 18 where God makes it very clear there is no such thing as a generational curse. So we'll explain this Exodus 34 here quick. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. So at this point, um, Moses is, is before the Lord because he's broken the Ten Commandments. It came down, he got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, came down, the people are worshiping the golden calf. He's mad, he breaks the tablets. Now he's got to humble himself, make new tablets, and go back and meet God again on the mountain. And so this is the point where he's meeting God again. And he's up there really because of his anger. Um, so to set it into, into context here, that's where we're going to pick it up. So, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, giving iniquity, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. So Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. So God kind of makes it, goes through this, who he is. He, he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord God, and he he gives a definition of what he is, and he's merciful, he's gracious, he's long-suffering. He's another word for long-suffering is slow to anger, about any goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. And then you have this by no means clearing. So the guilty there is not in the original text, and and there's many places where your your Bible is as a word or a group of words is italicized, and that's calling out that that's not in the original text, but Hebrew is not a word-for-word -word translation, so it's not always bad, but I just want to point that out. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children. Well, this word visiting is a very complex word, um, and it's, it's a, well, it, the sentence right there just really doesn't make sense, visiting the iniquity. But I would say to you, that what God is doing here is, is God's reminding Moses of how, how gracious, how merciful, how patient he is. But he's telling Moses, Moses, be careful. You're up here because of your anger and that what you do, you pass down to your children. Um, so if you want to know what you sound like, we've often said this, me and Shannon, if we want to know what we sound like, we just listen to our kids. Our kids let us know what we sound like. Um, and it's, we're showing them examples. 
And I think that that's what God is saying here to Moses. That be careful what you do. You're passing this down to your children. Whether you like it or not, you can pass down a good example to them or you can pass down a, a bad example. So if I let anger control my life, I will inevitably teach my kids that it's okay to have outbursts of anger, right? Um, not that God is going... And people have mistaken this and, and different translations look at it differently. Like the New Living Translation, you can definitely draw the conclusion, well, yeah, God's punishing the children for the father's sins. No, that's not what God's saying here. And I think that's important why you go back to these, these words here and, and get detailed into it. That's not what God's saying. God's not taking out the sins of the children because of the father. You know, he's saying that be careful what you do because you pass this down. But he clears all this up, God does, in Ezekiel chapter 18. That, that's still not an excuse. Oh, I, I was born into this house you know, that, that was filled with anger or born into this house with this, and that's why I, I have these problems. No, God says that's not your excuse. That's not an excuse. This was meant as a warning to Moses. Moses, be careful. What you do, you're going to affect your children. You're going to influence your children, and they'll influence their children, and they'll influence their children. That's what he's saying here. So... But this, the reason we're here is because this is where people get this idea of generational curses. So, but like I said, we'll go to Ezekiel chapter 18. And God clears that up very, very clearly. That there is no such thing as generational curses. So Ezekiel chapter 18, we're going to read the whole chapter here. Um, which is not all that much. But God makes it very clear. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. So this proverb here is not a proverb that you'll find in the book of Proverbs. This is like a, a wise saying in the day. You know, you hear people talk now about the Chinese proverbs, the, all these wise sayings. That's what this is. It's a quote-unquote wise saying. But it's not really a wise saying, and God's going to make that clear. But I just want to point that out. This is not one of God's proverbs. This is a worldly proverb. So, why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children mouths pucker at the taste. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you will not quote this proverb anymore in Israel. For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. Suppose a certain man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not feast in the mountains before Israel's idols or worship them. He does not commit adultery or have intercourse with women during the menstrual period. He is a merciful creator, not keeping the items given for security for the poor to the debtors. He does not rob the poor but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes to the needy. He grants loans without interest, stays away from injustice, is honest, fair when judging others, and faithfully obeys my decrees and regulations. Anyone who does these things is just and, I, and will surely live, says the Sovereign Lord. But suppose the man has a son who grows up to be a robber or a murderer or refuses to do what is right, and that son does all the evil things his father would never do. He worships idols on the mountains, commits adultery, oppresses the poor and helpless, steals, 
from debtors refusing to let them redeem their security, worships idols, commits detestable sins, and lends money at excessive interest. Should such a sinful person live? No. He must die and must take full blame. So that person must take full blame. But suppose that sinful son, in turn, has a son who sees his father's wickedness and decides against that kind of life. This son refuses to worship idols on the mountain and does commit adultery and does not commit adultery. He does not exploit the poor, but instead is fair to debtors and does not rob them. He gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He helps the poor, does not lend money at interest, and obeys all my regulations and decrees. Decrees. Such a person will not die because of his father's sins. He will surely live, but the father will die for his many sins, for being cruel, robbing people, doing what was clearly wrong among the people. What, you ask? Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sin? No. For if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the for the parent's sins and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness but if wicked people turn away from all their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right they will surely live and not die all their past sins will be forgotten and they will live because of the righteous things they have done. Do you think that I do you think that I like to see the wicked people die? says the sovereign lord, of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. However, if righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things and act like other sinners, should they be allowed to live? Of course not. All their righteous acts will be forgotten and they will die for their sins. Yet you say, the Lord isn't doing what is right. Listen to me, O people of Israel. I am the one. Listen to me, O people of Israel. Am I the one not doing what is right, or is it you? When righteous people turn from their righteous behaviors and start doing sinful things, they will die for it. Yes, they will die because of their sinful deeds. And if wicked people turn from their wickedness, obey the law, and do what is just and right, they will save their lives. They will live lives because they thought over and decided to turn from their sins. Such people will not die. And yet the people of Israel keep saying, the Lord isn't doing what is right. O people of Israel, it is you who are not doing what is right, not I. Therefore, I will judge each of you, O people of Israel, according to your actions, says the Sovereign Lord. Repent and turn from your sins. Let them dis- don't let them destroy you. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why would you die, O people of Israel? I don't want you to die, says the Sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. So, I think Ezekiel 18 makes it very clear. When the, when the father's sinful, 
he pays for his sins, but the son does not. I mean, God can't, I don't think can make it any more clear there. So anybody that talks about generational curses, I think you just take them to Ezekiel chapter 18. And God makes it very clear. The righteous father will be, will, will live. And then the, the next, the sinful son will die. And then the next, there's a righteous son, he will live. And each person will pay for their own sins, not the family's sins. So, so God makes it very clear. But then we kind of talk through, well, Matt, you say that, that you can't lose your salvation. But here it says if a righteous person turns and starts doing wicked things, they will surely die. And I think there's an explanation for that. And that explanation is there's people in the church that, that claim to receive Jesus, but really haven't. Maybe going through the motions um, outwardly or, or in their mind, but it's never sunk into their heart. Um, and, and the people that can turn from that righteousness and go on and live this sinful life apart from God, I would say that God never, they never truly asked God into their hearts. They maybe went through the motions and acted that way, um, looked like they were living righteously on the outside, but inwardly they were, they were always dead. They were never alive. So I don't think that the Bible contradicts itself. I don't think that what we read in Romans contradicts here, but I think the explanation is that, that those people never truly received God. So... So I hope that this clears up the idea of generational curses. So we'll finish up here in Romans. Actually, I take that back. Let's look at Psalms, though. We got sidetracked on this generational curses. But let's look at Psalms 44 and, and clear up this idea. Does God just lead, lead us like lambs to be slaughtered like he doesn't care about us? And the answer is no. So Psalm 44, starting here in verse 22. But for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and our oppression? So I'm trying to put a timeline to this of when this was written, and there is no timeline. Um, but I would say to you that this possibly could have been written during one of the, the captivities. Um, so the book of Jeremiah, to sum it up real quickly, Jeremiah is this prophet warning the people, the people have turned away from God. They're worshiping idols. And Jeremiah's trying to call them back and says, the judgment's coming, judgment's coming. Turn back to God. Turn away from your idols. And, and God says to, to the people, if you turn back now, I won't bring judgment. I won't punish you. But if you don't, calamity, all these awful things are coming your way. So the people, no, we're not turning back. We're just staying where we're at. So they, they don't turn back to God. So God says, okay, that's fine. That, that time is over. I'm bringing my judgment. But if you accept it, if you go into captivity, life will go well for you. But if you stay where you're at and still choose to live in rebellion, awful things are coming your way. Awful things. And the people, some choose to go into captivity. Some choose to accept God's judgment and life goes well for them. But there's still a remnant that says, no, we're going to stay living this sinful life. We're going to stay in our towns. You know, nothing can take us away from them. And this, the enemy comes and, and surrounds them. And, and they go for many years of, of being under siege. No food or water coming in. This huge famine sweeps through. And it gets to the point where um, two women come before the king and say, yesterday, you know, bring me justice. Yesterday we ate her baby. And today or yesterday we ate my baby and today we're supposed to eat hers and she's not sharing. And that's how awful things have gotten. Well, did God cause that? No, no, no. God warned them the whole time. 
turn back to me, you're headed down the wrong path. You're headed down the sinful path and it's going to lead to very awful things. And he warns them every step of the way and gives them a chance to repent, gives them a chance to accept his judgment and still live a life away from all these awful things and they choose not to. So God doesn't, doesn't cause that. And I would say this, this remnant, this small group, you know, at this time is feeling helpless. Like, oh God, you're ignoring us. No, God's not ignoring you. You were the ones that ignored God. He told you all along. Many times over a course of many, many, many years, stop doing this. Bad things are coming. Bad things are coming. Turn away from your sins. Repent. Accept my, my judgment. And, and you won't have all these awful things. And here they are. Here these awful things are. So it's not that, that God is asleep. God is never asleep, right? So, so that's the point of this verse. They're saying, oh, God, we're being slaughtered like sheep. Well, God told you that was going to happen, and you chose to ignore him. And, and now you think that he's the one sleeping. No, you were the ones asleep. You know, he's not looking the other way. He sees this, and this breaks his heart. You're the ones that ignored him, and, and that's how you ended up in this situation that you're in. So that's kind of the, the book of Jeremiah in a very brief, brief cliff notes. But so this idea of hopelessness is, is their, own, their own fault that has been brought upon them. Um, but God, I think, clears up this idea of being like a sheep led to slaughter in Isaiah 53. And we won't read all of Isaiah 53, but this is a, a chapter you should read. You should know. Um, this is the, the prophetic chapter speaking of, of Jesus long before Jesus was ever on the earth. This was written. But I just want to pull out a few verses that clear up this sheep being led to slaughter. So Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. So the one that was led like a slam to the slaughter, like a lamb to the slaughter was Jesus. And he did it willingly. He went and paid the price for our sins. He was willing to be sacrificed for us. And he didn't, didn't, didn't object. At any point, he, he could have called down his angels from heaven to rescue him, and they would have. But he didn't. He went silently to, to the, the pain and the suffering that he was going to endure for our sakes. So they have it backwards. They're, oh, we're being led like lambs to the slaughter. No, no, no. Jesus was the one that was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And that, I think we'll go back to uh, Romans 8.36 now. And that is what clears it up. This is a misconception. The people were in their own sins, and that's, they felt like God had abandoned them. But really, it was them that abandoned God. And that's what Paul's kind of making a contrast here, saying, okay, when we go through these troubles, you know, nothing is separated from God's love. When we go through these troubles, does that mean that God doesn't love us anymore? You know, like we're being sheep led away to the slaughter? No, no, no. That's not it at all. God's not helpless or doesn't render us helpless, doesn't um, have no concern for us. He loves us so much he sent his son. So don't be like the, the sons of Korah who write this down, that... They're being led away like sheep to the slaughter, this helpless feeling. No, no, that's not how God is. And he even clears that up in verse 37. He says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross. The, the war is over. Um, so what he's really saying here is don't have a pity party for yourself when things are going bad. 
you know, when we went over this, ask yourself, God, is there sin in my life that needs to be dealt with? Or God, please help me to get through this. Not hurry up and get this over with, but help me to endure through this. Strengthen my endurance and my trust and my faith in you. Because the victory is already ours. It's won by Jesus on the cross. We just need to realize it. So. And then next we'll finish up the last two verses here in Romans 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I think this really clears up. There's nothing that can separate you from that love. You've received that love. That sacrifice that Jesus made is his love. Him showing us his love. You received that. You received him into your life. He's come into your life. And nothing can separate us. And then some people still argue, well, that's fine. But I can walk away from, from God, right? No, no, no. Right here it says that nor here in verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, which were created things, will be able to separate us from God's love. So if you've truly received God, and, and you start to walk away from in this life of sin, you may live in that life of sin for a little while, but it won't be the same as it was before. God won't give you that, allow that same pleasure to, to take place, and, and will chasten you, will bring that correction to you. So, this idea that, that we could live this righteous life and then live a wicked life and die, when we probably never received God at all, and it was all an outward thing. You see that with the religious leaders. They lived this outward life, and inwardly, they were very much dead. Outwardly, they looked very, well, they have it all together. People looked up to them. Inwardly, they hated God and wanted to kill him, right? You see that? So, so inwardly, outwardly, they looked good, but inwardly, they always were dead. And here... If someone receives God and tries to walk away, it just doesn't work. You won't have that same pleasure in the world, that same um, experience that you did before. God will take that away. He'll chasten you. He'll correct you. He'll punish you. And he'll bring you back to him. Because he doesn't lose those who, who he loves. Um, and we see that. Our last area of scripture today is John chapter 10, verse 27. So, John ten twenty seven. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them away from the Father's hands. The Father and I are one. So God doesn't lead us like sheep to be slaughtered. But he leads us like sheep to green, lush pastures, to eternal life. Um, nothing can take us out of Jesus or the Father's hands. Jesus and the Father are one. We serve one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And when we believe in him, we are eternally um, set apart. We are saved, and nothing can separate us from that salvation, from God's love, from his sacrifice on the cross. So, and that's... Where are we in today? So, a little bit long, but I don't know. The, the part of the generational curses just kind of came up and I could not, couldn't pass over that. That the sons of Korah didn't perish like the other sons 
Well, why was it? Well, they went on to be temple assistants. They went on to serve God. They went on to write many psalms, praising and worshiping God. God knew that they would do that, had a plan and a purpose for them, and doesn't take the sins of their father out on them. So, But for the other families, God knew that the sins of the father would be passed down to the sins of the children, possibly. Or even if some of those children died who, who were righteous, then they're received by God. God says that he... Those who are righteous will live, and those who are not will die. That He is the one that can judge that, right? So who can condemn? Paul said Jesus can. So, so I don't. It just seemed very important to go over that because I think some a lot. Well, I think a lot of us struggle with, oh, this is who I am. This is the family I'm in. This is a, a generational curse, and it is not true. It's a, a false teaching. So, do you got any questions? You do. And we hear it all the time. Oh, yeah. You do. And this way because... And it's a, it's a sinful excuse. And that's what the world tries to do, give you all these excuses as to why it's okay to live in sin. Well, I'm an alcoholic. It's a disease I have. No, no. You're an alcoholic because you choose to live that way. You've shackled yourself willingly to that sin, and now you're being led away from it. But Jesus can break the power of that sin in your life. Well, the other side, as you said, <clears throat> is that our children see what we do. So as a child, if you see your dad drinking or blah, 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 you follow that same pattern. Oh, yeah. Of, yes. Of, then you're yeah. saying that's not a generational curse, though. Cause right. It's learned behavior. You're yep. doing it on your own. Learned behavior. Yes. You don't have to do it. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. So got, generational curse means you're, you're going that way no matter yes, what. Yes. It's out of your... That's not true. Yeah. We're set free. But the thing, like you were saying, it's a learned behavior, and at some point, I mean, we need to be conscious of it. it, And at some point, we become conscious of it, and then it becomes our choice. Absolutely, that we continue to do it. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yep. And as adults, as people who children are looking up to, we need to have that in in the back of our minds that we influence these kids, and that's what God was telling Moses there in Exodus thirty-four. Not this idea of generational curses where they have no chance. No, no, God, clear that up. <laughs> if you choose to live in sin, that's your choice. But we absolutely influence them and will be held accountable is what God's telling Moses. Because I find it very interesting if, if God says that it's kind of this hopelessness, well, Moses is very excited and worships God after that. God, you're so great. Please walk with us, guide us. We're such a stiff-necked, sinful people. Pardon us. You know, forgive our sins. You know, is what he goes on to say. So it's not this hopelessness. And then, as you said, follows right to Romans where it says he's never going to leave us or forsake us no matter what we yes. do. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I have a true life because there's people who say yeah. you can lose your salvation. Yeah. And some people say that. behaviors, but you, you, you cannot. Yeah. Once you've accepted If Christ. we truly accept it. If you yeah. Truly. Like you said that. Too. She should. So they were, they're looking at, and they probably were, they're probably going through one of these times, so the Israelites were under siege. So back then you'd have a, a town and you'd have like a wall around the town to protect it, right? And if the enemy wanted to come against you, they'd laid siege against you. So they'd have all their, all their warriors and soldiers out around your town. Okay, so now you're in your town, you're safe in there, but you can't go in and out. Well, there wasn't 
necessarily enough farming or crops inside the town to sustain all the people. So you'd run out of food and, or possibly water, you know, maybe you had to go out of town to get water. So the, the people of Israel are, are in this, in this predicament and they're, they're being killed every day. They're dying of famine of, and I'm not saying that the, the, that Psalm 44 is directly, it's written in that time, but I'm saying it could have been written during that time where they're, they're in this, they're being slaughtered by the enemy. They're weak. Um, they haven't eaten for long periods of time and then they feel helpless. But the reason they're in that, God warned them for hundreds of years leading up to that, turn, this is gonna happen, turn away from this, don't do this, don't do this. And yet they chose to, nope, we're gonna to continue to worship our idols, we're gonna stay where we're at, you're lying to us, God, this is what's best for us. And the whole time God's saying, no, don't do this, this is awful, things are coming. So when they're being led like sheep to the, sh like sheep to the slaughter, it was their own choice. And God tried many different ways with many different prophets to steer them away from that. Does that make sense? So God didn't lead them like sheep to be slaughtered. They led themselves like sheep to be slaughtered. And God tried many, many times to desperately pull away from them. Pull them away from that. Okay. The giant sinkhole? Yeah. Fucked up. <laughs> yeah. It says they were led to the grave alive? Yes. Yeah, so, so the... the um, back then, they, they believed the grave was in the center of the earth. And I would probably... That's another bigger study, but I, I'd go along with that, right? That Sheol, the, we kind of went over this, the grave. There was two compartments, the, the place of the righteous dead and the place of the unrighteous dead. And that's in the center of the earth. So they're saying that they went down to the center of the earth. They went down to the grave alive. You know, they were alive and the earth just opened up this hole and poof, they fell down into it and then got buried alive, right? So they died. And that was God's judgment on them for, for coming against God. Saying, you know, God, because if, if you read through chapter 16, Moses says, well, you Levites have a very special job. Anyways, you, you're God's chosen people to lead the people in worship and in prayer. You've been given a very special task, but you're saying you don't like that task. You want this one over here. You're, you're saying God got this all wrong. And you're not coming against Moses. You're coming against God. So that's why God brings this judgment against them and, and swallows them. You know, they go down into the sinkhole alive. They were alive when it happened. And, and for the, one more thing to that. So the other, if we would have kept reading in chapter 16, it says that all the nation ran away in terror. Oh, we're all going to die because they all had that same mentality. Oh, Moses, you shouldn't be leading us. God's got this all wrong. We want to go back to Egypt where we were prosperous. Now we're out in the wilderness. We're going to die. So it, it scared all the other nation, the rest of the nation too, to turn their hearts back to God. And they did for like one night and the next morning they were back at it complaining. And, and so God brings a plague if we kept reading in 16. So then the next morning they come back to Moses complaining again that after this had just happened, the very next morning they're complaining again. So God brings this, says to Moses again, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses is pleading, Moses and Aaron are pleading for him. And God says, nope. And he brings this plague and, and Moses and Aaron go out and intercede for the people. And the plague is stopped, but not before it killed like 14,000 people that morning. No, you're fine. You're um, fine. The, when Moses is like saying, well, when God said, I'll wipe them all out, why did Moses stop him from doing that? Well, ask him to stop. 
That's a very good question. So does that mean that God changed his mind? Like, oh, God was going to wipe them out. And Moses, you know, got God straightened out. No, no. God was never going to wipe them out. Because this is God's chosen people. This is how he'd bring the Messiah. God is provoking an emotion for Moses. And this emotion was to give... Because Moses is very angry with people too and has a very short fuse with them. And God is trying to, to change Moses' heart and give them a heart for the people. So when God said, I'm going to wipe them out, I don't think that was ever God's intent because he's going to intend to bring his, his son through these people. Jesus is, comes down from these people. So his intent, God's intent was to change Moses' heart, to provoke an emotion to change Moses' heart. And God can use the circumstances in our lives. God can use tough circumstances in our lives to, to change our hearts, to provoke emotions that draws us, gives us a heart for people. Does that make sense? And that's what God was doing, I think. Very good question, though. Okay. Any more questions? I'm not giving up all my pity. <laughs> I think that's exactly why Paul's got that in there. He's pointing it out. There's no more pity party. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. God has a purpose for this that you're going through. He doesn't just... Oh, yeah. It is. It is. But that purpose is to trust in Him, to grow our faith, have that endurance with Him. But that's what those trials, somebody, I think it was Ed that always taught, there was three stages to a trial. You're either just getting in one, you're in the middle of one, or you're just getting done with one. Those are the only three stages, but you're always in some kind of trial in your life. It's either just starting, you're going through it, or it just ended. But, and, and if it just ended, the next one is right around the corner. And it's... Yeah. <laughs> but Dave taught us... In, yeah, and it sounds, it sounds very discouraging. But Dave taught us, too, that when you're in these trials, if, if, we, if we're focused on ourselves, having our pity party, we lose sight of it. But we ask God, God, what do you want me to learn? I want to learn this lesson, and, and I want to move on. I, I want to get past the second grade. I don't like repeating the second grade trial. Because in times in my life, it seemed like I went through trials over and over and over again until I finally learned the lesson that he was trying to teach me. And then another one came, but it wasn't the same one over again. Because that, that is very, I think, hard. But does it also, like, does it mean that any of those trials get any easier? Because our faith is stronger? I think so. Horrible? I think so. And that's and it's just devastating. Yep. Because we trust in that peace that Jesus said. Not an absence from conflict, but a peace to go through the conflict. And when we trust in him, when we believe in him, okay, God, this is what you said. You'll give me peace. I'm praying that please give me peace through this conflict. And I've seen that in our lives. I've seen that in my life. It didn't always go to him right away. And that's usually where I fall short. It's, it's not always the first thing I do is, oh God, I'm in this trial. Please help me see the lesson you want me to learn. Give me peace through this. Help me to be a light and a witness to you through this. No, it's usually I'm halfway through it. And oh yeah, I should be asking God for help. So we sing one last song. Oh, well, let's pray, actually, before we sing one last song. Do we have any new prayer requests? No? Okay. Dear Father, I just thank you so much for this time to come to learn about you, to learn how much you love us, you care for us, to just get more into your word and, and just see how amazing you are, how you have 
fit this all together, how you've orchestrated this all. And it all points to your son, Jesus, and your love for us. And that love is, is his sacrifice on the cross. And I'm so thankful for that. And Lord, I ask that you would just watch over each one of us this week, that you would bless us, that you would help us to have patience and wisdom that can only come from you, that we would be a light and a witness to you, and that we would um, have a peace while we go through the trials that we go through, the peace that only you can give. I just ask that you would draw us closer to you during that time. Um, Lord, I ask that everyone that's on our prayer list, that you would meet those needs right where they're at. You know our thoughts, our desires, what each one of us is going through. Meet us where we're at. Come alongside us, encourage us, comfort us, guide us. Strengthen our faith in you each and every day. Lord, I ask you to watch over this community, that you would bless it, that you would just bring, um, make your name great in this community, that there's many here that love you, and help us to have the courage to, to speak out in love and in truth about the things that your son has done in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. Okay. That's all.